when you're down and trouble and you need some love and care and nothing well nothing is going right close your eyes and think of me and soon I will be I'm C.J. Layton coming to you from inside the Phantom Radio Studio, home of the premier radio bowling talk show. Long ago, Bowler's Journal International called Phantom Radio a pioneer in the field of bowling podcasts because the show is regularly scheduled at the same time each week. PBA Hall of Famer Len Nicholson started the show in 2002. Since then, he's recorded over 1,100 shows featuring over 400 different guests, a literal who's who in bowling. So, Phantom fans, let's welcome our host, Len Nicholson, the Phantom. Well, thank you, CJ. And a reminder that Phantom Radio is presented by the Kegel Company. Well, Phantom fans, this week's special guest is a man who has a true passion for the sport of bowling. A lifelong bowler, originally from Brooklyn, he is a highly respected professional bowling writer. And his book, Pin Action, was and still is a big hit and is still available. Well, he previously worked as a managing editor and features writer for Bowl.com, and he now holds the important position as editor of Bowler's Journal International. He's been here with us many times before, so here he is again, the talented, educated, and personable Jean-Marco Manzion. Good morning, Mr. John. How you doing, Parts? And welcome hey. back to the show. Hey, Phantom. Thanks so much. It's been entirely too long. It's wonderful hearing your voice again and uh, and getting on Phantom Radio. Well, John, you know, I appreciate you taking the time to be here with us again on Phantom Radio. And I can't believe either that it's been over a, since, since a, about a year or so since you've been on here with us. So time sure flies. But I got a lot to talk with you about, so let's just get right to it. I know that you're a busy man because I follow you on Facebook and I do see most of what you do. And really, I, lo- I love it when you post your daughter's pictures on there. She's beautiful. She, the way she puts all that jelly on her face is perfect, man. But I love it. And, and I, I want to start with something that most people don't know about you. And, and that is that you're an award-winning poet. Can you tell us something about that? <laughs> well, I I, um, <clears throat> I made the spectacularly um, wise financial decision, uh, Phantom, of uh, going to get my MFA in in creative writing with a concentration in poetry at a place called the New School, which uh, ultimately was an experience that came with a heck of a lot of student loan debt and not a heck of a lot to show for it. Um, (laughs) But I will say, I did that at that time because I really wanted to continue to pursue my passion for literature and and poetry and writing, and, and that's what I fell in love with in college. I had a lot of wonderful mentors in college, two in particular philosophy professors that have been teaching at Manhattan College, my alma mater, for half a century, literally, uh, Rentaro Hashimoto and Alfredo Delasha. And um, they were brilliant men who mentored me and cultivated my curiosity uh, and made me aware of my ignorance in ways that were in- inspiring because that made me want to learn more. And uh, then I went on to study with <clears throat> some really well-known folks uh, like Richard Howard, uh, renowned like Pulitzer Prize-winning, um, very famous a literary figure and uh, incredibly accomplished poet was my thesis advisor 
uh, at the New School. David Lehman, who is another very, very well-known international literary figure, edits the uh, Best American Poetry Anthology each year. He was um, my uh, workshop seminar instructor. That was just really cool because David was, you know, he had been personal friends with some of the poets that I most admire who were immensely famous, like John Ashbery comes immediately to mind. And John won the Pulitzer Prize, the National Book Award, and the National Book Critics Circle Award for his collection, Self-Portrait in a Convex Mirror, that came out in, uh, in the 1970s, I think 74. And just being in the presence of a guy like David Lehman, who was a personal friend of an outright, unbelievable legend in literature like John Ashbery, was a... a, a thing of awe for me. So yeah, it came with student loan debt, but it also came with the unbelievable experience of studying under people who are as unimaginably accomplished as them. And, uh, and yeah, since then, I've continued in my abundant free time, not that I'm being sarcastic there at all as a father of two small children with an intensely demanding job, um, you know, do a, a pen a poem here and there. I've, I've had a nice streak here lately that you perhaps, these are the posts you're referring to in Facebook I've had. Uh, let's say four poems published each in a different journal, one forthcoming in a, in a journal that I kind of sort of a dream journal of mine called the Cimarron Review. A lot of really big poets have been published in there. And it's, of course, amazing for me to see my name alongside theirs in a journal that I revere. Um, so, yeah, things like that have been coming my way in recent months for some reason. And that's great. Uh, it's, it's wonderful to know that, uh, you know, something I write in the stolen moments of my frenzied life uh, matter to someone uh, enough to say, hey, you know, we'd like to print this in our in our journal, and um, I'm really grateful for that. That's cool. You know, uh, I'm sure there's all different kinds of, of poetry. The only poetry I know is like "Happy Birthday to You," "Happy Birthday to You," know, things that That's rhyme. That, that rhyme, but I, I guess the real deep poetry just has a real deep meaning to it that you got to read into, right? Well, you know, rhyme, of course, was uh, the predominant uh, means of poetic expression for centuries, and um, there are all sorts of different forms that, that came out of that, some rhyming, some not. One of my favorites is um, a form called Terza Rima, <clears throat> which is a rhyming form. That's the form in which, the rhyme scheme in which Dante wrote um, uh, the Inferno, the Paradiso, and, and uh, the Purgatorio. And I've actually written in that form. I, so I, I do play with rhyme myself more often. However, I don't. Um, you know, and, and uh, at the end of the 19th century, you middle to the end of the 19th century, you had a guy named Walt Whitman come along who just broke the doors off of what had by then become the conventional means of poetic expression, writing an iambic pentameter, an iambic pentameter line, the various rhyme schemes um, that were employed. And then you, after Whitman, you had folks like Ezra Pound and T.S. Eliot come along in the 1920s, w, uh, William Carlos Williams, the so-called modernists who again, wanted to break the, the iambic pentameter line, and Ezra Pound um, famously put it, uh, make it new. That was his mantra. That had a huge influence on, on poetry internationally and certainly American contemporary poetry. And then you had uh, folks like the confessional poets come in in the 50s and 60s and 70s, and Sexton and John Berryman, a, a poet I dearly love, um, Sylvia Plath, uh, Adrian Rich, um, poets of, of that generation who came around and were doing what you just um, hinted at, which was they're not writing in rhyme or any necessarily preconceived or so-called found form, but they, you know, and Sexton in particular, are people who are, are sort of mining the, the fraught wilderness of, their, of mental illness. And using that as the source of poetic expression, sadly, you know, Sexton, Berryman, and Flath all uh, died by their own hands. Um, but it, be before they did that to themselves, 
produced some of the most spectacular poetry um, ever written, Sylvie Plath being an English poet and, and John being American poets. John won the Pulitzer Prize and won the Pulitzer Prize. Sylvia Plath's Ariel, her last book, um, has some of the most famous uh, poems ever written in the 20th century. And again, these weren't always rhyming poems. They did find a different means of poetic expression, and it's thanks in part to the influence of folks like Whitman and, and the modernists that that, that happens. Um, so today you do see <clears throat> there's a bit of a return to form in journals today. If you read contemporary journals, you'll see a lot of sonnets. You'll see sestinas. You'll see villanelles. You'll see pantoums. Um, you'll see people even writing in an iambic pentameter line these days. It's just that, you know, when your predecessors are folks like John Donne and William Wordsworth, it's kind of hard. You know, John Keith, I mean, the anxiety of influence, as the famous literary critic Harold Bloom put it, is a serious thing. And, and you're wondering, what can I do that Shakespeare didn't already cover in the terrain of his, uh, of his rhyming sonnets, you know? <laughs> so it's tough. So, and, and free verse does still dominate, um, but I do see uh, sort of a hankering for form more and more in literary journals today, uh, and that's fun. It's fun to, in the 20th century, against you know all of the, the social, political, and, and, and societal uh, constructs that, that are the backdrop of poetry written today, try your hand at, at um, more formal stuff and, and see how that plays with today's audience and in sort of today's you know milieu or, or whatever um, uh, and I, there's a lot of fun formal stuff coming out as a result of that. Well, I, I do know one poem that I've got memorized, and it's by a famous bowler, Billy Waylo. He said, hit him thin and That's watch right. him spin. Absolutely. Billy Waylo was an American poet on top of being a, a number of other dazzling things. I totally agree with that. <laughs> All right. As I mentioned in the opening, you're currently the editor of Bowler's Journal, and that is a huge job. And I'm sure you have a really manage your time and with your daughter and your poetry and your Facebook and, and everything else. How do you manage your time, Bart? Well, the poetry is nice, but it doesn't pay the bills. And so that's uh, as wonderful as it is to be able to uh, try my hand at it here and there. It takes a backseat to other much more urgent obligations, such as a very deadline-driven job as editor of Boulder's Journal. My two daughters uh, certainly demand... Uh, their share of my time as well. Uh, I also am fortunate to be married to the wonderful uh, Brittany Manzione. My marriage is something that I want to make sure I carve time for as well. And between those three things, um, yeah, it's, it's pretty tough to pen a poem here and there. And uh, there isn't a heck of a lot of time. And I would say the only way uh, I'm really able to, to keep going is to A, have no social life and B, get very little sleep. And those are the <laughs> secrets to my success. I don't know if they've worked for anyone else. <laughs> All right. Well, we've, we've got them educated out there. Now, now I want mm -hmm. them to know uh, something that you know. It, it, I know that you, you record interviews from time to time, and you also write some special columns. You got anything like that that you can tell us about that's coming up? Well, thank you for asking, uh, Lenny. I do think there is something uh, coming up in the, in the uh, September issue of Bowler Journal that we just closed especially fans of, of old-school professional wrestling will love. Uh, hopefully, I've picked the ears of some of your listeners with that tease. <laughs> you know, I had always heard growing up um, as a kid who did a heck of a lot of youth bowling, was a, a bowling alley rat, and listened to a lot of the conversation around me, which is how, in part, my book connection became possible. I had heard whispers here and there, uh, Phantom, uh, growing up in bowling alleys, that so-called Mr. Wonderful Paul Orndorff, a uh, WWF 
when it was WWF, now it's WWE legend, uh, especially in the 1980s, had also gone on to become a bowling proprietor. And, you know, up until I really dug into this uh, with the immensely talented researcher, Eric Hartman, who was an enormous help in really uncovering this layer by layer by digging through uh, old issues of newspapers going back to 1960s issues of the Tampa Tribune uh, and then the Atlanta Journal-Constitution in the 1980s. And then my own interviews, I went calling around to uh, local Tampa Bay area proprietors like Jeff Boger, uh, former BPAA uh, president, and uh, uh, Tony Peroni, another uh, proprietor in the Tampa Bay area whose family's role in the bowling business in this town goes back to 1957. And together, Eric and I were able to sort of piece together this story of Paul Orndorff's involvement in bowling and much more that I wasn't able to squeeze into my column in September than perhaps uh, it's something that I'll pursue in greater depth down the line when the opportunity presents itself. Um, you know, Paul Orndorff did purchase, actually didn't, he didn't purchase, he built this center in Fayetteville, Georgia in the late 1980s, around 1987, I believe is when it was open. And I have this wonderful quote from him that I dug up in, well, Eric dug it up for me, in the Atlanta, no, the Tampa Tribune, August 20th, 1988 issue of the Tampa Tribune, a story ran Orndorff at that point already having uh, run uh, multiple other centers in Georgia, in and around the Atlanta area, now is going to open up a, a Tampa Bay area center. And one of the reasons he gave this uh, Tribune sports editor for doing that was, quote, now I quit wrestling so I could spend more time with my family. For the last four and a half years, I have wrestled 300 days a year and almost that much for nine years before that I had had it. <laughs> um, so just a, a brutal, you know, a, a, the brutal life that is uh, a life on the road as a pro wrestler and, and especially being a top biller as he was, I can't even imagine just how, how a grading that was over time. He, he did, he does end up trying to open up uh, this center in Tampa. There's a whole sort of, sorted story that evolves from that, but I can get to in a minute. But the Fayetteville Center is really interesting. Um, so he opens the center in the late 80s. A bowler by the, his son is, is a youth bowler there. Uh, we were able to track down um, his son, Travis, honor scores by Travis Orndorff that were printed in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution in the mid-90s. Uh, Travis is credited with a 670-something series in uh, 1995. Uh, Orndorff himself, Paul, also was a talented bowler. I found, thanks to Eric's uh, research, an honor score of Paul's. He shot a 642 series in league. And, and you know, this is back in the 80s when scores weren't quite as astronomical as, as they would become uh, after that, right? Yeah. Um, so, you know, that took some talent. Uh, it just shows you his athletic prowess. I mean, here's a guy who was an all-star uh, fullback for the University of Tampa football team and ended up uh, becoming – part of the uh, UT uh, Sports Hall of Fame as a result of his role on their football team back in the day. So uh, as I'm digging through this, what happens, the Phantom, is you sort of fall down this rabbit hole of research. And I noticed on one of the honor sheet scores from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution in the mid-90s that Eric sent me that uh, uh, one Jason Sterner popped up on, on one of these honor scores right next to Travis Orndorff's honor score. So I thought, huh, so he, you know, Jason Sterner's from Fayetteville, Georgia. So did he? You know, so this is the PBA Tour standout, current guy of a big time uh, competitor on tour who's having an unbelievable 2021. Made lots of, of shows early in the season, one or two major shows um, uh, to boot. I ended up uh, calling the center 
and his getting in touch with his dad, Jim, Jason Sterner's dad, Jim, who's 79 years old and has worked at this bowling center for 35 years. And I asked Jim, I said, so did you ever see any pro wrestlers, you know, wandering through your bowling center back in the day? And he said he couldn't remember a lot, but did remember that the Iron Sheik was among the pro wrestlers who would wander through the center back then, um, which is anyone who knows anything about the Iron Sheik knows the man is a, a, a just a total sort of whack job. <laughs> and so if he was hanging out at this place. You know, there were some characters uh, up at, at the, this fateful bowling center that Paul Orndorff um, uh, was able to, to get off the ground. So then I start poking around some more. I, I talked with Jason Sterner about it. And, he, and I said, you know, Jason, it's like your pro bowling career may not ever have happened had it not been for a professional wrestler, wrestler taking the initiative to build a bowling center basically in your backyard where you were growing up as a kid. And he said, yeah, that's basically true. <laughs> so people don't realize it, but maybe to some extent, maybe to a large extent, we have uh, Mr. Wonderful Paul Orndorff to thank for the fact that Jason Sterner even exists on, on the PBA tour today. There's so many other cool things that evolved from this. I got in touch with Wes Pye at Storm, who had been a big-time bowler in the Atlanta area back in the day, um, and told me he bowled at this Fayetteville Bowling Center a lot back in the 80s. And he said he remembers seeing Paul Orndorff in the center, himself emptying ashtrays in this bowling center. Wow. Um, isn't that great? And he, he said he was always well-dressed, classy guy, had seemed to have a good family. So, you know, I was able to confirm, you know, this sort of firsthand account of someone in West High, you know, coming with all the credibility that he has amassed in the industry over the years, saying, yeah, I, I saw Paul Orndorff in the center. Of course, he was, he was – uh, actively involved, at least to the extent that, that he was able to see. As I'm slipping down this rabbit hole, I end up, uh, again, with Eric's help, um, finding not just that Paul Orndorff had uh, a history in bowling. And by the way, I should mention, you know, that this, this Paul Orndorff thing came to mind because, sadly, Paul Orndorff died, I believe, at age 71 on July 12th of this year. Um, and that's why I started thinking about him, and I figured, you know, now's the time, if ever, to really try and nail this down. And I was able to do that uh, in collaboration with Eric Hartman. But Eric starts sending me these clippings from the mid-1960s. Um, and if there are any real pro wrestling fans listening to this, they'll recognize um, this name. Check out this quick clipping from the October 3rd, 1965 edition of the Tampa Tribune. Uh, it says, quote, Terry Bolia, a 12-year-old panorama kegler, Rolled 175, 143, 191, a 509 series, and will receive two AJBC patches, one for the 191 game and another for the better than 500 series. Now, anyone who's listening to this who knows pro wrestling history knows that Terry Belia went on to become Hulk Hogan. Wow. And so, so this is Hulk Hogan as a youth bowler growing up in Tampa. Uh, Paul Orndorff was a native of Brandon, a Tampa suburb. Um, so they grew up almost around the same time and certainly in the same general area. I found another clipping from the January 3rd, 1964 edition of the Tampa Tribune. Now, Hogan, I believe, was born around 1953, and so he would have been 12 or 13 years old at this time, as that last clipping suggested. This is another one that I love. It says, quote, winners for Panorama were Roxanne Dickinson and Terry Belia, Bantam Mixed Doubles 549. <laughs> so I see that, Phantom, and I wonder, you know, did little Roxanne Dickinson go on to realize that she won a Bantam mixed doubles bowling title with Hulk Hogan? <laughs> you know, some of these clippings uh, showing Hogan's bowling accomplishments as a, as a youth bowler back in the sixties have pictures 
of Hulk Hogan as a 13-year-old boy. Actually, this is from 66, so he would have been like 15 or 16 at this time. And, and Phantom, he, is, he towers over all the other kids of similar age in these, in these photos. There's one where, I mean, he's like a full head above everyone else in the shot. You can see even from then, this one picture I'm looking at as I'm talking to you is from the December 30th, 1965 edition of the Tampa Tribune. And he's, like I said, he's a full head above all these other kids. And they are, as this story uh, tells it, the proud winners of a gathered together just prior to receiving their trophies. The Bantam Boys winners in the 1965 Tampa Junior Bowling Association tournament, uh, one of whom, again, was Terry Bolia. And there he is standing uh, next to one other kid in the back row in this photo. Just really cool. You know, um, I also talked with a proprietor named uh, uh, Tony Peroni in the Tampa Bay area. He's the guy whose family's uh, um, activities in the bowling business in Tampa goes back to 1957, um, who told me, yeah. He saw the, the pro wrestlers hanging out in, in, in uh, what was known as Regal Lanes in Tampa back then in the 70s before their huge fame. Paul Orndorff would bowl there. Dusty Rhodes would be in the center. And they would participate in fundraisers. They would hang out late into the night. And, and hilariously, I asked Tony, well, why were they hanging out in the bowling alley? And he said, uh, because we were open. <laughs> Meaning, you know, they were open until 4 o'clock in the morning. And where else were these pro wrestlers going to? going to hang out, uh, but, you know, a bowling center that, that gives him the opportunity to do so into the wee small hours of the morning. Um, he said bowling and wrestling were very interwoven uh, in the Tampa area back then, Fan. I mean, large part because of the fundraisers that they would be a part of as they were ascending to the heights of fame in their profession as pro wrestlers. So there is more to the story, but at this point, I feel like I've gone on for quite some time, and I know the old clock on the wall is probably ticking, Phantom. So you tell me if I have any more time to to expand on this. So you're done. Actually, <laughs> actually, that was really interesting, and I'm looking forward to this. You got some more coming out in your articles? That's right, yeah. So people can read more about this in, in my column on the Masthead page the, from the editor column in the September issue of Boulder's Journal. Um, and maybe I'll leave them hanging with this. You know, Paul Orndorff's uh, role as a bowling proprietor sort of hit the skids in the early 90s when he got involved with a uh, sort of a shyster of a businessman whom Jeff Boger told me he remembers as someone who always had a cloud over him and was sort of mysterious. And uh, that cloud was a dark one for a number of pro wrestlers who, who um, found themselves on the wrong end of this particular uh, business person's shenanigans in the Tampa Bay uh, bowling proprietor um, scene. And that's what they can read more about in the forthcoming issue of Bowler's Journal. Cool. You know, I, I was really interested in this whole thing that you're talking about because about three weeks ago, I saw the the history of pro bo pro wrestling and they're starting up a, a, a huge museum and they had, mm. the, they had the Iron Sheik on there and he was donating nice. a pair of his shoes and one of, if you remember his shoes, he had a big old curly cue at the end by his toe. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and these things are, are supposedly going to be huge, like $10,000 for different guys' uh, coats and, and, and robes and, and all oh, kinds I of imagine. Things. I mean, the Sheik's boots are iconic. And there's, uh, as I, I understand it, there's a whole flourishing scene of old school pro wrestling fans who flock to sort of Comic-Con style pro wrestling events and get autographs and memorabilia. So I'm sure there's a, an active market for that kind of stuff, no doubt. All right, Pars, well, you called it the old clock on the wall, tells us we are out of time, and I really enjoyed hearing from you again, and I know that our, our listeners will, and we look forward to talking to all of you again next week. 
we'll have another interesting guest to talk to. And in closing, I want to thank our sponsors, Storm Bowling Products and Brad Edelman from the High Roller for their valued and continued support of our show. We appreciate all that they do to keep us coming back to you each and every week. And also a shout out to our newest sponsor, Dave Kowalski. He's with Auto Value and Bumper to Bumper Auto Parts Stores. Great talking to you. Take care of yourself and your great family. This is The Phantom. When you're down and troubled And you need some love and care And nothing, well, nothing is going right Close your eyes and think of me And soon I 